Please turn with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king and Kayun your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So here we are with Amos. Uh, Amos is a shepherd. I'm going to go ahead and take us back to chapter uh, 1 as we begin working our way through the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. He isn't anyone special. He isn't a great political figure or a well-known figure among the people of Israel. He's just a man, just a shepherd. He, he goes out of his way to make this point again in Amos chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. One of the priests in chapter 7 uh, of Amos, uh, the priest named Amaziah, was complaining about Amos's prophecy. And he was complaining because it was so negative, all right? You're going to see that. You already, I think that was the most depressing scripture reading we've ever had on a Sunday morning. All right, it's, this is a severe text that we have before us. And, and Amaziah didn't like it. And so he tries to report Amos to King Jeroboam. Often, one uh, in the prophets, the, the priests are accused of pandering to political leaders instead of submitting to the truth of God's word. That the prophets were reminding the whole of the people, including the priesthood and the king, of the covenant of God. And that they were breaking it. Well, the king and the priests don't like that. And so they complain and they whine and they conspire against the prophets. In other words, much of the prophets are a rebuke of the priesthood and of the kings who ought to have been faithfully shepherding the people. That was their job, faithfully to shepherd the people. And here, in Amos, God calls a shepherd to be a prophet. Here's how it goes. In Amos chapter 7, verse 14, it says this. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. 
And then he goes on to prophesy. He goes on to declare the word of the Lord that includes the end of Jeroboam's life and the end of Jeroboam's reign. See, Amos was a shepherd. That's all he was. But it is the word of the Lord that makes him a prophet. The word of the Lord. It's so important. No prophet is a wise man. Therefore, you should listen to him. No, no prophet, a prophet isn't a person who knows the future, and so you get real curious and say, say more words so we can know the future too. A prophet is simply one through whom God has chosen to make his will and his ways known to his people. And what's interesting, I find, as I'm working my way through the prophets with you, is that really the prophets say almost nothing new. It's what the people should have known from the covenant already. The call of the prophets is remember. So let's look at the outline of Amos. As we work our our way through, the outline of Amos is this. I want to sort of banner for you what the outline is, and then we'll walk through that outline together. Here's the banner of the outline. It goes something like this. Amos 1 and 2. Amos holds up God's holiness. Okay? Chapters 1 and 2, God's holiness. In Amos 3 through 6, Amos holds up God's justice. In Amos 7 through 9, and this is an important distinction, Amos holds up God's judgment. And then, at the very end, just when it's about concluded, just a few verses, in Amos 9, 11 through 15, Amos holds up salvation. So let's begin together looking at Amos 1 and 2. Amos 1 and 2 holds out God's holiness. I want to tell you, um, there's no way that we could actually cover the book of Amos together. That's just impossible. We, we can't do that. What my hope is, is that we would gain a level of familiarity that invites us into a sort of relationship that we continue during the course of our week and our lives. A bit of an introduction. If you haven't met Amos already, I'd like to introduce you to him. I just met him recently myself. And let's get to know this guy. More importantly, the God that he knows and that he makes known as an invitation to an ongoing relationship that the word of God would become ours together, church. So we'll look at this overview to get to know each other a little bit, and then we get to go deeper in the coming days and life that God would give us. So Amos chapter 1, verse 2. We're 10 minutes into the sermon, and we're in verse 2 of a book. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. A lion is a roaring theme in the book of Amos. Now that shouldn't surprise us. Amos is a shepherd. This is important. When When God speaks by his prophet, you can still hear the echoes of the instrument that God is using. These are God's words to his people. But they're words spoken through this dude. His name is Amos, and he was a shepherd, and he talks about lions. Why? Because he's heard them before. He's heard them roar, and he's known the fear for himself and for the people or the, 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 the animals 
that he is watching over. Amos chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? There's a reason he's saying that the Lord roars. He's roaring because there is cause for coming judgment. He's not roaring like a yawn, okay? If you hear the roar of the Lord, if you hear his voice loudly, he set his sight on Israel and on the nations like prey. Amos 3.8, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos can't help but speak the truth because the word of the Lord has become clear to him. Amos isn't special. The Lord has clearly spoken. All he's doing is he's hearing it. He's spoken by his covenant. He's spoken by his law. He's spoken by his call to repentance and faith. And Amos is saying it's clear. You can hear him roar. He doesn't prophesy because it makes him happy or gives him a position in the kingdom. He, he's, he's being persecuted because of what he's saying. He's prophesying because he's among those who are afraid of the voice that's roaring. He speaks because the Lord has spoken. The theme of Amos 1 and 2 is the glory or holiness of our God that has been defiled by the sin of the nations and particularly Israel. I want you to turn with me to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. For their cruelty, you can see it here, for their cruelty to the righteous, to the needy, to the poor, to the afflicted, to the abused, for their cruelty to all of these people, for their behavior that is not in alignment with the character of God or his revelation or his law, his holy name has been profaned. You can see that at the end of verse 7, so that my holy name is profaned. All of these ways that they walk in before the righteous, the needy, the poor, the afflicted, and the abused that you see in verses 6 and 7 are not the way of the Lord. They're not his way. They're not his character. And they ought not be the way of his people. So what is wrong with Israel's sin? I find this fascinating. What is wrong with Israel's sin is not immediately the effect that it has upon the poor or needy. What is wrong with Israel's sin is that it profanes the holy name of the Lord whom Israel bears. The Lord has associated his reputation and his glory, his holiness with a particular people. And the Lord's holy name is often referenced during the course of Amos. In Amos 4.2, the, the Lord has sworn by his holiness the cause of the Lord in Amos is his holiness that is being abused by his people. Amos 1, through the beginning of Amos 2, actually bears the list of a series of nations. If your Bible's formatted something like mine, you can see, like verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Eden. You have the Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and then Judah, and finally Israel. Here's the shocking thing of 
Amos. The, the people of God in Israel could have heard almost everything that Amos has to say. Of course God's going to judge Damascus. Of course he's going to judge our enemies and those who have abused us in a variety of ways. Of course he's going to judge the people who don't have the temple or haven't been called by his name out of Egypt, those who are not the, 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 the chosen people from out uh, who, who carry on the line of the covenant from Abraham or from David. Of course they would agree with this, but it's a shocking thing what happens. Israel and Judah get named right in the list. They have a problem with that. That's difficult to hear. And and what I've come to believe about Amos is Amos is actually not judgment upon the nations. He's listing the nations, then grouping Israel into the, the nations that are about to be judged, shocking them, and then making an argument for why in the world that ought to happen. Because of his holy name, and yet they've behaved just like all of the other nations. But they haven't just behaved like all of the other nations. They are without excuse, Israel and Judah. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. The Lord has been good to them. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before you, in verse 9. It was God who, who brought them into the land, the conquest of Canaan. In verse 10, he references the exodus and God's provision for them in the wilderness. God has been good to them. In verse 11, he raised up Nazarites and prophets for Israel. The Lord has provided for Israel with generous blessing from their founding, and he's preserved them during the course of all of the centuries. But then verse 12 comes along. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy the people have rejected the gifts and the provision of the Lord, and particularly his word. And I think that's at the center of the problem with the people of Israel and what Amos is bringing as an accusation against them. I'm reminded of the father's words at the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember what he says to the disciples? This is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. The generous grace of our God to give us the word, made flesh, to dwell among us, to reveal to us God himself. Listen. Yet Israel, like us so very often, we reject the word. The Lord has been good to raise up prophets, but how often have the Lord's people rejected the generosity of of the word. Quickly, I want to walk through three example verses. I would encourage you to maybe jot these down in your notes so you can go back to them during the course of the week. They'll also, uh, many of these verses are in the study guide. If you look there, Second Chronicles 24, 19 says this, yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. He said, he's testifying against them, but why? To bring them back to remind them of the covenant but they ignored the kindness of the lord was sent to the prophets to remind them of the covenant of the lord but the people were so distracted by their own desires and i'm thinking man that's us that's us jeremiah 25 verses 4 and 5 you've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear 
Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil ways and evil deeds. You hear the warning. The Lord has faithfully spoken and he's faithfully warned. It's the people who have failed to listen. Yeah, that's us. Luke, in the New Testament, Luke chapter 11, verse 49, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, all the way through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. The, The response is not only to reject the Lord's messengers, the response is to persecute and to kill them. You see, our response is not just to sin, our response is to sin with gusto. Our response is not to, just to ignore the word of the Lord, but to abhor the word of the Lord. The Lord is holy. This is the message of chapters one and two. If, if he has spoken, if the holy God has spoken, we must listen to him. We must take his word as the generous provision that it is. I love the title of the book by Francis Schaeffer. He is there, and he is not silent. Oh, he is the God, and he's the holy God. But he's the holy God that has given his prophets. And he's spoken. Man, listen. We have to treat it like food, by which we are nourished. Food by which we are preserved. The major reason why we're doing this season is so we can take up and make use of this portion of Scripture that is so often neglected. Man, I want the minor prophets, the book of 12, to be ours. It already is. The Lord has given it to his people. But until you take it up and you eat it, it's not yours. I want this book to be ours. Amos 3 through 6, as we move on, Amos 3 through 6 is about the justice of God. Amos 3 through 6 is broken up into really four chapters, and those four chapters have a a recurring theme, three parts and then one. There are three cries of hear this, and then finally a pronouncement of woe. You can kind of deduce why. He says, hear this, and then a pronouncement of curse and judgment and woe because they don't listen. The Lord is establishing the justice of the judgment that he's going to announce in the second section. Listen to the justice. Hear this in Amos chapter 3. He begins in Amos 3, in this first hear this section, by pointing directly to the fact that he is just to judge the very ones that he called out of Egypt. Look at Amos 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this, that the word of the Lord is spoken against you, the people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You and you only have I, lo- have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Oh, that's fascinating. He uses the fact that he has called them, that he has known them, that they, that they belong to him, as justification, as an argument for the justice of the judgment that he's about to bring. The Lord destroys a delusion that was present among the people, that because Israel belongs to him, that he will not judge them. He'll judge the other nations, 
He'll judge the other peoples. But we're Israel. So we're all good. It's a delusion. It's because the Lord has associated his holy name with Israel that he must punish their iniquities. They more than all the others know the truth because they know the law that has been revealed to them and they've been called into a covenant relationship with him. He's walked with them and he's made his holiness known among them and he's revealed his word and reminder to them. The Lord has spoken clearly. He's warned the people to turn and repent. Look at verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What does that mean? It means the Lord has warned. You know what's coming. The Amorites, they might be like, oh my goodness, where did that judgment come from? The Edomites might be absolutely shocked even by last week's section in Abadiah. The people who are far off in Tyre, they might be bewildered. But the Lord has told Israel. He's warned them, given them as his covenant people warning of judgment and a call to repent. God does nothing without first warning them. Listen, God doesn't have to tell anybody anything. You know that, right? The title of Schaefer's book could have been, he's there. We have a great impression of that. He doesn't have to tell us anything. He can do what he wants and make so, no mistake, what he wants, he does. But the great generosity, the, the gracious gift, his revelation, that he's told us anything at all. He's told us who he is. He's given us a glimpse of his character, his holiness. What he's saying here is, I don't owe you anything, but I have given you prophets. And you've ignored them. I warn you so that you might turn and repent. Hear this. Amos chapter 4, the second hear this. Not only has the Lord given the people prophets, he's also sent them discipline that they might turn and repent. Look at verses 6 through 9. The people have suffered. They've suffered famine, drought, and blight. Verse 6 says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Friends, that doesn't mean that they have great dentistry. All right? If your teeth are clean like this, it's because you haven't eaten anything. He's, he's disciplined them severely. He didn't just leave them be and ignore them and let them raise themselves. He has been a present father to his son Israel. In verse, nine, in verse 10, he says, I, I sent you pestilence like that experienced in Egypt, and you still didn't listen. I sent you overthrow of cities in verse 11, like that experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. You still didn't listen. Israel, in the face of each of these local momentary judgments, has failed every time to repent. And hear that. That's so important. These are not cataclysmic events. These are local momentary judgments that he quickly then healed to show them, I am holy. And there is a more severe judgment 
that is coming if you don't repent. Verse 12, one of the most important verses in the book. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's interesting. It's no small thing to be confronted with the holiness of God. That should be the application of every point, every single sermon, every single point in every sermon. Prepare to meet your God. I'd ask you, how's it going to go? What does your conception of, of meeting God look like? How is that going to go? Consider the holiness of the roaring lion. Perhaps you're familiar with Psalm 46.10. You're like, I'm not sure. Well, here it is. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. It's a beautiful word. Be still. Ah, in this hectic, distracted world, the, the, the call to be still is a blessed one until we pay attention even to the context of the psalm. The context of the psalm is sit down. Do you know me? Contemplate me. Listen. Know me. It is a beautiful word that we can know our God. And it is simultaneously a fearful thing. I'm the one who gave you my word, he's saying, and you ignored me. Be still. Sit down. Listen. I'm the one who has disciplined you and you've persisted in sin. Sit down. Be still. Before the Lord, we ought to become quiet and seriously contemplate the fullness of his character, his holiness, and his salvation. Be still and know it's a beautiful thing, and it is a fearful thing. It's the meeting of a lion in a wilderness. Beautiful. Terrifying. Consider, you who, who prepare to meet your God, How's that going to go in the wilderness? I'm reminded of, a, of an illustration I've given many times over the course of the last decade with you. Aslan, in the Chronicles of Narnia, some of you are familiar with this. If you're not, go get familiar with this. All right? A beaver is talking, all right, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he says this, Aslan... The, the, the God figure in the book who's coming and he's roaring and he's entering the land to bring judgment upon the witch and all those who follow after him. And the cry is, Aslan is coming and he's bringing redemption, but it's a fearful thing. Things are going to change when the day of Aslan comes. And the beaver says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was British, 
all right? <laughs> Maybe just a little understated. Safe, says Beaver, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Man, when we are prepared to meet your God, oh yeah, I just can't wait to meet Jesus. Is Jesus a man? I thought he was a man. He's the God-man. He's the lion-like lamb who sits today on the throne and, and we'll see him. In prayer, prepared to, to meet him. He is not safe, Amos is saying. Get situated, sit down, be still, and listen. He is good. And I can prove to you that he's good because you're nothing like him. You're nothing like him. Hear this, Amos says. Amos chapter 5, he gives the third hear this. Over the course of chapter 5, the Lord pleads with Israel. Repeatedly, he says, verse 4, verse 6, verse 14, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good, not evil, that you may live throughout the history of Israel Israel has looked forward to the day of the Lord, when the the Lord will judge his enemies. Oh, won't that be a great day? If you have enemies, I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems that you and I have in understanding the scripture is we have so few enemies. Man, in places in the world that the word enemy like makes sense, they understand the word better than you and I do. Maybe we should get to know somebody who could teach us about the the word from somewhere else. And there is a cry among those who have enemies. Oh, the day of the Lord is is a day of rescue and recompense where he will judge the enemies of those who have cried out to him. But here's what Israel has failed to behold. They failed to discern that they themselves have become the enemies of the holiness of the Lord. Look at verse 18 of chapter five. Woe to you. Who desire the day of the Lord. Why? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and said, and a serpent bit him. Who is this Lord? What's his day going to be like? Who is the Lord who's coming? And what is the nature of his holiness? Who is this that we say week after week? We say it, right? Lord, come quickly. What do we mean by that? Who is it that's coming quickly? Israel has tried to fend uh, any judgment that might come their way through something that here at Cross Point Coast we call pretending and performing. The, the day of the Lord is coming, but they're going to mitigate against it. All the enemies will be crushed, and they'll be okay because they're busy pretending and performing. They've, they've tried to hold feasts and sacrifices and to gather offerings to placate the Lord's judgment, the, but the Lord has not called them to these feasts. He's called them to repentance. Verse 23, take away from me 
the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. It's just vibrations in the air. And what need does the Lord have for vibrations in the air? Is that what the Lord has desired? He hates, verse 21, I hate, comma, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Their feasts, their assemblies, their sacrifices, their offerings, their singing, their music. The Lord has called this gathering, we say, don't we? The Lord has called this gathering. And he's enabled it by his grace. The Lord called their gathering. And he enabled their gathering by his grace. He's the one who came up with the idea of the assembly and their offerings. Welcome in the name of the Lord, right? But if we don't walk in faith and dependence upon him, he would say, I hate your celebration services. I despise. I hate how solemn you think you are. I hate the way that you sit so quiet so you don't interrupt anybody around you and you tell your kid to shut up so no, you don't bring shame on your family in the way that you sit around these seats together. I hate it. Despise your pretending and your performing. Just because you sing songs, you sit for a long time while somebody talks, you think in some way that that's congruent with my holiness. In verse 25, the Lord makes a powerful point. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? A little history lesson. Let's get our, our order of things right. When the Lord called the people to himself and he rescued them out of Egypt, it wasn't because they'd worshiped and sacrificed to him just so. They didn't even have the orders of, of worship. They had not been given the commandments of sacrifice. They hadn't been given the, com the Ten Commandments at all. They were actually being called out of Israel to worship. The Lord redeems them to himself. And then he situates them in the generous gift of the call to worship. But we get it backwards we think we are the ones who have worshipped him in some way acceptably so, so that he says, ah, that's my kind of people. I think I'll situate myself with them, maybe even rescue them out of difficult circumstances. I want a people like that. Friends, that is pretending. That is performing. And we go back to it so very often. Why were they redeemed? Because they were needy. And they cried out to the Lord in their nothing, and the Lord heard their cry, and he redeemed. And he gave them himself. This is the heart of genuine faith. Genuine faith doesn't try to win over the Lord's favor through sacrifices or, or any religious behavior. The Lord saves because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is merciful. The Lord saves. And the, 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 the genuine faith that we respond to his saving grace with is one that does not try to win over the Lord. Remember this. Remember this. Not one of the sacrifices of the Old Testament worked. Not one of the pretendings and performings. 
Not one of the things that you have done to prove to God that he made a good decision by saving you works. They don't do anything. There is one sacrifice that worked. That sacrifice is the sacrifice of the Lord himself. The Lord has commanded sacrifice, and we have not managed to do one that worked. And the Lord said, well, that's kind of the plan, because I need to show you something. You can't save yourselves, and you never will. My sacrifice will work. And it worked. The Son made the sacrifice sufficient work of salvation. What is required of us but to cry out in need Faith, dependence upon the Lord alone who saves. Three pronouncements. Hear this. And then woe, verse, chapter 6. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who are at ease. Instead of repentance, instead of crying out to the Lord and prayerful dependence, instead of recognizing the, the desperation of their need, the people are at ease. Judgment won't ever come for us. Everybody knows that. We're Israel. We bear his holy name. Right? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is, is, is so at the center of this book. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Pride. There it is. Pride. The, the opposite of faith. It's to place one's confidence in one's self. It's endemic in our own national culture here in America. It's a considerable weakness to find yourself in dependence upon anyone else, and it, it carries over into the way that we interact with our God and his people. The Lord has called us to be dependent upon him, to cry out to him. God, save us from our enemies, and we've come to know this. My greatest enemy is me. Save me. To, to repent, to truly repent, is to abandon all hope of salvation except that the Lord is merciful. If the Lord is merciful, if this great, roaring, holy, righteous lion happens to also be merciful, save me. And he is. And he forgives and he restores. I recognize this is a severe sermon. But honestly, if you read the book and go and do, Amos is even more severe. It's the whole point. The whole point of Amos is there's no hope in yourselves. There is only hope if the Lord happens. Just maybe. Is it perhaps true in the universe that God is merciful? If he is, he forgives and he restores. Just before the Lord moves from these three, hear this passages and this woe in chapter six, he offers 
hope. He offers exactly this hope. Actually, in chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, hate evil. The call is love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that because you do these things, you'll just cover over all your other sins. No. No. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. Grace, friends. Gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The purpose of the Lord in his judgment upon his people is not their destruction. His purpose is to discipline and to preserve a remnant who by his grace put their faith in him. Just pause there for just one second. In so many ways, the the life of the individual believer is a microcosm of the congregation and the people. That so very often I've experienced this in my life. That the purpose of God plays itself out in my life to, to cast down so much that is me. So much of my pride and my arrogance, so much of my pretending and performing that he might redeem a remnant. That he might transform, that he might imbue in me some righteousness and grant a gift of a, a love that I did not have before and to restore and to renew and rise up something beautiful and new to preserve a remnant. Amos 7 through 9, this next section is a section of judgment. He has five visions. The first three are in rapid succession in chapter 7. With the first two, Amos cries out, O Lord, God, I heard the judgment. Please forgive. The next judgment, O Lord, God, please cease. The prophet is speaking, and he's speaking back to the Lord. And, And the Lord relents both times. And then in the third, in the end, the Lord measures up Israel and Amos sees the measure, and he sees the justice of the judgment that's coming. And the Lord brings low her high places, her places of idolatry. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, this is a, a song that will be sung in the temple courts. And we're given the words to the song, verse 3, so many dead bodies. They're drowned everywhere. Silence. What a song. Is that a hymn? Like a praise chorus? Is that just the chorus of a song? What does it sound like to to be still and know the judgment of God? A song. The judgment of the Lord is severe for those who abuse his holiness and will not hear his call to repentance. Be still and know who he is. And who we are before him, you see. It's a brutal reality. But it aligns with the brutal reality of Israel in that day. This brutal reality doesn't come out of nowhere. Verse 4, hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. You sell them for grain. The judgment comes to the heart of Israel. In, verse, in chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals. 
and the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the peoples. He's bringing judgment right to the center of the reality, right to the heart of the temple. The Lord goes to the altar in the temple and he pronounces judgment there. The call of the prophet is both clear and it's severe. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter three, a quotation of another location in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. Hear the warning. The Lord is holy. The final section, chapter nine. It doesn't even come until near the end, beginning at verses, verse 11 through 15. The final section is salvation, restoration. If the Lord's purpose was judgment, we probably wouldn't even have the minor prophets. If there wasn't verses 11 through 15 in this book, we wouldn't have the book at all. He would have no reason to even speak if his purpose was not to restore. He's tutoring a remnant. He's tutoring a people who would turn, hear the warning, and believe. He just would have judged them. But that's not his purpose. The purpose of God is salvation through judgment. The glory of God in salvation through judgment, that incredible title of that book, the uh, biblical theology, I commend the, the book to you. God's, the glory of God in salvation through judgment. In Amos, the Lord has brought us through a clear line of argument. In, verse, in chapters 1 and 2, God is holy. The nations and Israel are an affront to his holy name. In, verse, in chapters 3 through 6, it is just. The Lord has been generous, patient, even warned Israel, but they've failed to repent. Chapters seven through nine, judgment. The judgment of the Lord is thorough and severe. One, might, one thing, one might think that the argument has, is really ending in justice, but this isn't just a story that the prophets have to tell. Their story doesn't end with judgment. The story ends with restoration, This is where the Lord is going with judgment. Look at verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. It turns out that this passage is very important to us. It's quoted at a special moment in the history of the church in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, In the Jerusalem Council, the topic for discussion at the council is what does it mean that the Holy Spirit looks as though he's bringing his spirit upon not only the Jews, but also upon the Gentiles. Acts chapter 15, verse 14, the Gentiles are taken for the name of the Lord. Here's what it says. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take From them, a people for his name. What is the Lord in the business of doing? Taking a people for himself by his mercy and grace. 
taking, blessing, and keeping a people. God is going to preserve a remnant in Israel through whom he will bring salvation to the nations. Friends, there are three things I would have for us to remember and to reflect upon in the coming days. The first is the Lord's holiness and our pride. Amos 6.8 is utterly important for our understanding of the Lord's response to sin. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. The response to the Lord's own name and character to pride of humanity is judgment. Friends, confess pride. Confess. That's the call. Don't become angry that you're prideful and do it better next time. Confess your pride. Relent before the Lord. At the same time, confess that the Lord alone is worthy. And at the same time, take joy and confidence that the Lord alone is worthy. He's worthy. And you know him. And he's made himself known to you. The second is this. Does our worship and our lives sing the same song? Does our use of our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure, sing the same song as the song of our worship? Why should we, uh, one of my, my favorite quotes from Chen Kilgore is, is, why should we expect the people in our, in our community to convert to the God that we worship on Sunday morning when they've already converted to the God that we worship the rest of the week? What if, what if our lives sing the same song, the Lord is holy, the Lord is holy. Repent and believe. Know that the glory of our God has brought salvation through judgment. And here's the gift. Know the gospel. It's exactly how he's done it. He didn't just come and say, hey, you know, I know I'm holy. I know I gave you a way to live and to follow after me, but it's all right. Don't worry about it. I'm super merciful, super generous like that. Don't worry about it. He sent his own son that through the judgment that fell on him in our place, we might be forgiven. You see, that is a call to faith, not pretending, not to performance, but humility before a deep grace of our God. Heavenly Father, I pray that not only today, but in the coming weeks, you would bring us as, as a people underneath of your word, underneath of your character and your revelation, that you would work in us, transform us, show us your grace and kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not just spoken, you have roared like a lion, and that we know the nature, the fullness of your character, would we submit ourselves to it. Thank you, God. I pray that you would save in the severity of this message that might fall on some ears and, and be met with blindness, I pray that your spirit would, would give sight to see that this is grace to their ears and grace to their hearts, that they too might believe and find joy in the God who has loved their soul. I pray that you would work these miracles in the midst of the congregation and in the coming days. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Name, the miracle worker, the grace giver, the judgment receiver, the lover of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.